Everybody and welcome to True Stories of Tinseltown. Today is part two of Mugs and Malls, and I am here with my dear friend and gangster maniac who knows his gangsters true and cinematic, Mr. Stone Wallace, aka Stony Curtis, and I got that nickname from the be- the, the Flintstones. Yay. Hi, Stone. Hey, how are you doing there, Grace? Holding I'm, up well? Yes, I am swell as can be. That's good to hear. You ain't kidding. How are you? <laughs> How are you? Uh, getting along pretty well, you know, getting, getting stuff done and uh, trying to, you know, get through this period with the least amount of discomfort as possible, as we all are. Yeah, and um, yay, fall is almost here. It's such a beautiful day here in New York City. I took a long walk this morning, and it was just fabu. And fall is my favorite time of year, so it's great here. Just nice and comfy and just beautiful. But You know, I've always wanted to spend part of fall on the East Coast, New York. There is uh, absolutely uh, nothing like it. Vermont, Maine, New Hampshire, upstate New York. It's it's just so beautiful. And I love the four seasons. I really do. And I, uh, although summer is too hot for me sometimes, but, you know, I'm, I'm, I love them all. But fall is my favorite time of year. To me, it's renewal. I think it is. Go back to school. Is. Yeah. No, yes. Picturesque, you know, beautiful. And cool. Uh, yeah. I like fall, too, actually. I don't uh, look forward to winter too much because where I am here in Winnipeg, you never know what kind of a winter you're going to have. We had a pretty mild one last year, but from what I've been hearing, they're predicting a pretty pretty strong one this year, and uh, that's something I don't look forward to. Well, where are you long, John? <laughs> <laughs> okay. So what well, are you? Yes, I think I'm echoing, but I think we'll get through this, everybody. I don't think I'm echoing all the time, so maybe you don't hear this echo, because you don't hear the echo, do you, Stone? Not on my end, no. Good. So I bet nobody will hear the echo but me. Sue, why don't you tell everybody which movie we are starting with today? I think we are starting with a great classic by a director you wouldn't think would be associated with a film of that type, director Robert Wise in Born to Kill. What a great film, you guys. This is fab, fabulous. I don't think it's as well-known as other films, but um, you see Claire, it stars Claire Trevor and Lawrence Tierney, who was bad. He was a bad boy in real life, too. And um, it, it's a really good movie about two very uh, immoral people. You know, they just are just kind of... Bad to the bone. It was interesting about that film. We talk about mugs and malls. Although she's not really characterized as a mall in the movie, Claire Trevor 
<laughs> is just as bad as Lawrence Tierney in that picture. She and, uh, is horrible. She's like a monster. Exactly, and if you can, if you can, you know, be on equal footing in that kind of a character with Lawrence Tierney, you know, you're giving a good performance. She is, and they meet. How does how does she meet? Does she see him when she she's getting a divorce? She's in Reno, and she's staying at this house with this actress who's a character actress who's sort of the cross eyes. I don't know her name. And then her best friend is this little blonde who's been in so many films, marked women, all this stuff. I'm trying to think of her name. Mm, I can't think of myself at the moment. I don't get her name. She's such a good actress. She's been in tons of films. She was in Marked Women. She was in tons and tons of films. Okay, I'm going to here. We're going to IMDb. No, uh, well, who cares? Let's go. Let's go. <laughs> Let's go on. Okay. Um, I know you talk Audrey, Audrey Long. Yes, that's a cross-eyed lady. Yeah. That's the one. Yes, right. But, but I was thinking of the blonde who was in Marked oh, Woman uh, and. Um, She's this cutie, and I love her, and she's done tons of films. She was in um, a lot of stuff. Mm. Tiny little blonde, and I love her, but she's in Oh, I know who you're talking about. Uh, Isabel Jewell. That's her. She was in um, just the end of uh, the one where they're beheading everybody in France, (laughs) and she's in front of of, uh, Ronald Coleman. So a, tale, you, a tale of two cities. Right. If you have to have anybody talking to you before you get your head cut off, I'd want it to be Ronald Coleman. <laughs> uh, that's a, yeah, that's a, that's, a, that's a great, great scene. Oh, great film. it is. Climax. Okay, so let's get back to Born to Kill. So she okay. she is a divorcee. She's in Reno, as is Isabel Jewell. And Isabel Jewell... Um, is dating Lawrence Tierney. Did she go out with the other guy to make Lawrence Tierney jealous? I think that was the case. It could be. I can't, you know, it's been a while since I've seen that film, so I can't remember that aspect of it. So she goes on a date. This isn't really a big spoiler because this happens right in the beginning of the film and sort of carries the film. And um, he doesn't really care about Elizabeth, uh, Isabel Jewell, but he is jealous, and it's like, okay. She belongs to me, even though I can't. I don't really care about her. So if anyone's with him, goes on one date, and anyone sees anybody else, he's going to go cray cray. And he does, and he kills Isabel Jewell, and the poor sucker. She goes out to make Lawrence Tierney jealous with, and I believe Claire Trevor sees the guy, um, but she just goes on her way back to wherever she lives, San Francisco or something. I think she sees Lawrence Tierney. Um, kill her. That is my take. And I think well, they yeah. Live, yeah, I think they live in San... She lives in San Francisco and Lawrence Tierney and he's with our favorite little guy. <laughs> oh, yes. Cookie. Cookie. Um, who is... What's the guy's name? Um, Junior. Elijah Cook. Elijah Cook. And he is his little partner in crime and of course, Lawrence Tierney is the big dude on campus. He meets Claire, and then he meets—I guess she's hit her stepsister, the uh, rich one that. who has all the money, and she got t- mm-hmm. taken in by the rich family. But she was always like the, you know, the second, you know, like the stepsister, the ugly stepsister kind of thing. And um, he marries 
She's in love with Lawrence Tierney, but she marries her sister, stepsister. And uh, (laughs) the woman is trying to find, the lady with the cross eyes is trying to find the killer. And she's paying uh, (laughs) the wonderful actor, Victor Slezak, to see who murdered her her friend. And um, Claire Trevor is just a beast in this. And what she does to that lady... And it's so funny. He gets jealous because he sees um, Elijah Cook come out of <laughs> Claire Trevor's room. Like Claire and Elijah Cook are really, you know, getting down tonight, you know, <laughs> or doing any of that. But then he cl- he kills his friend. Well, he's a total sociopathic character. That's made clear at the beginning. He's self-serving, cares only for himself, uses people to only serve his own desires. So it's a very there's not an, an ounce of sympathy in that in that portrayal, and of course Tierney had the right characteristic to play that part to perfection. Oh man, there's so many great stories about him. I want to do a show on him. Um, also, Claire Trevor was a beast. Like I said, I didn't see any redeeming qualities about her. She only helped her sister um, when I don't know he was. I don't really know, but but. You know, she paid the fate. You know, she was not a good person. And, you know, in those times, if you did something bad, you had to pay for it. And she did, as did Lawrence Tierney. But they were both very, yeah, born to kill, and she was born bad. She was just bad. And you know who played her fiancé in that, that she, she was begging him to come? And he said, you have no heart, you have no soul. It was Philip Terry, and he is like the unknown guy that was Joan Crawford's third husband. That's right. He had, he had a, you know, a, a fair career, but yeah. uh, he was never a star. I remember him, I remember him uh, with my friend Colleen Gray uh, uh, in The Leech Woman. That's probably the film <laughs> I... <laughs> I've got to watch that. I have that on my Amazon. I've got to watch Check it The out. Leech Woman. Pretty good movie. The only uh, film that Colleen Gray ever had a starring role in, although she did <laughs> films as a co-star, but that was her only starring film. Yes, and uh, yeah, so it was. It's a good movie, and um, they're both bad. And she's not exactly his mall, but she'll kill for him. She'll do whatever, and it's not just for him. It's for her selfish motives as well. Because she can't stand her, her stepsister. And she's had to, like, grovel for her money her whole life. So <laughs> you kind of get But now that. we can move into a more sympathetic portrayal of uh, Claire Trevor as uh, Amal. Our next film, which is? Key Largo. Key Largo, absolutely. And she... Edward G. Robinson's Mall. Yes, and she is so amazing in this role, just as she was... As she's likable so much as poor alcoholic woman. You like her, you feel for her, and it just shows you what a great actress Claire Trevor was to be able to do really nasty parts and then come on and do this role as gay Don. <laughs> and he hadn't seen her in a while, and he's, you know, Rocco, and he goes to... And Claire was attractive. She was still... And, and like... Edward G. Robinson was a dreamboat, let's face it. So, you know, Claire looked pretty damn good. The only problem was she was an alcoholic. And uh, he dis- she disgusted him, and, you know, he was cruel to her. And 
just as mean as can be, as she sang. And she was just a really, you know, a sad woman, but with a good heart who actually kind of saved the day in her own way. And she got an Academy Award for that role, Best Supporting Actress. And it is my favorite uh, movie that um, Humphrey Bogart and Lauren Bacall do. And I agree with you. That's my favorite Bogie Bacall as well. But what's the story now? There is a well-known story about the part when she has to sing the song for the drink that Edward G. Robinson promised her, which he doesn't give her anyway. And she sings, I believe, Moan and Low. And she didn't want to actually do it because she was uncomfortable about singing a song in the film. And Houston, he did some kind of a... Did he say he was going to sh- like shoot the scene separately away from the cast so she no, wouldn't have to do he did What's the story? S- the story with that was she... She was going to um, take singing lessons, and she was taking singing lessons. And she, the night before, he calls her and said, okay, you're doing your song tomorrow. And she said, but I didn't finish my singing lessons. I sound terrible. He said, exactly. That's how you're supposed to sound. You're not supposed to sound good. And she was just like, ah. But he called her the night before, and she was horrified and embarrassed to do it in front of all those people. But she did it, and she was great. And this is one of my favorite parts is when, you know, he refuses to give her the the, the, the horrible Edward G. Johnny Rocco, does not give her booze. Bogey goes over there to give her the booze, and Johnny Rocco goes to Bogart, slaps him across the face about 22 times, and then Bogart just moves along. <laughs> just walks away. Yeah. You know what's interesting about these directors, because that scene with... Um, with uh, Claire Trevor singing that song, I think was one of the reasons she did get the Academy Award. I agree. And you know what? I don't want to go off track too much, but the same thing happened to Victor McLaughlin when he did The Informer, where uh, John Ford told McLaughlin he wouldn't be needed the next day for filming. So knowing McLaughlin enjoyed a drink or two, McLaughlin went out and got totally hammered that night, and he got a call the next morning hungover from uh, John Ford telling him to report to the set. And apparently he came to the set and did the scene he was supposed to do in a terribly hungover way. But that scene apparently was also what uh, earned him the best Oscar actor. So, or actor Oscar, yeah. So there you go. I mean, the tricks they use, and you think they're being cruel, but they end up winning you an Academy Award. Right, and she was wonderful. And, you know, I I don't think anybody's going to laugh at her. They know her character. They know her part. And they're probably saying, God, I'm so glad I don't have to sing Moan and Low. (laughs) Just so glad, and she she really does save the day. When I loved when I uh, spoiler kinda when I first saw Key Largo, you know when she goes to Johnny, don't leave me, Johnny, don't leave me. I love you, I love you, and he like pushes her away. I had I really thought she was doing that for real. I'm like, why? And then all of a sudden, I see why she was doing it. Slick, really slick, Gay Don. Yes. Oh yeah, (laughs) she was good. Because she knew Bogart wouldn't be coming back from that trip. Right. That was a given. Yes. Um, so that was a great movie. I really like the actor. And I, uh, what's his name? Gomez? Thomas Gomez. He is so such a natural. I've seen him in a bunch. He's in Phantom Lady. He's in a bunch of movies. And I love him as an actor. He's really great. He's really real. You believe him 100%. He's not hammy. And he's really good. Not like the other guy. He's like, he, 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 he. Oh, dude. 
Yeah. <laughs> the, the, the psychopath, too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah uh, Thomas Gomez. He was also really well, uh, very good in that movie with um, John Garfield, where he played Garfield's honest brother, uh, Force of Evil. Terrific movie, great performance by both of them in that film. Yes. So that's just a, you know, if you notice, he's in there and you will see him and he's done a lot of films. And I really, I thought he gave a really good performance in that, as he always does. Okay. How about our next? And I have to wait, just quick mention there of my dear friend, uh, Mark Lawrence, the movie's quintessential gangster who played, who plays um, uh, Ziggy. And they have a great scene together, a kibitzing scene, him and Robinson. And uh, uh, Mark Lawrence was always such a terrific presence in these films, regardless of the size of the role. But, right. yeah, he was great with Robinson there. He, could, he had a good time in that movie. Well, it looks, they were all great. I'm, and like I said, it's my favorite. Um, it's, it's quiet. It's them acting in such a natural way, Bogart and Bacall. It's not, it's just a real movie to me, and it is my favorite that they do. And it's nice that it's yours, too. Well, isn't that something? Well, it's, it was, don't forget, it was also based on a stage play, as was The Petrified Forest, which is kind of similar in a way to Key Largo. When I called him Duke Manatee. <laughs> <laughs> Duke, uh, Duke, Duke Manatee, but uh, Manatee, that wasn't him. That's probably where he got the idea that uh, Robert Sherwood for the character was Manatee. <laughs> but that's what I called it when I po- uh, posted our podcast we did on that. <laughs> and um, not, yeah, that's a great movie, yeah. And, of course, we know the story that Leslie Howard insisted that Bogart came from Broadway and got the role. And they named their daughter Leslie after Leslie Howard. So here we are giving you a few Hollywood tidbits, Tinseltown tidbits, along with the thing, which is good. I, I, it's fun to get a few of these little stories out there, that's, I think. That's why you name your podcast Two Stories from Tinseltown. Yes. Yes. And, you know, if it's not true, I allege. You know, I don't know if it's true or not, so I will do allegedly, but most of them are pretty true. Um, I think so. I think so, too. Okay, next movie. Pow, pow, pow. Gun Crazy. Gun cra- <laughs> 1950 Gun Crazy, directed by the great Joseph H. Lewis, starring John Dahl and the wonderful Peggy Cummins in another version of the Bonnie and Clyde story. Yeah, I really like that movie, and I was reading some reviews on it, and it was funny because John Dahl really, somebody said that he is like the uncharismatic James Stewart kind of person, <laughs> but he doesn't have any charisma. But he was per- he was great in this role. And I think she was the boss, totally the boss of this. Oh, yeah. She was the mall and the, the mug. She was both, I think. Oh, yeah, she was totally, yeah. She was the, uh, the, the in charge of that, of that relationship in every way possible. You know, you and... Know. And when I first saw that, too, I also thought she was just scheming liar to him, and she was going to leave him. And I was fooled, fooled me. She did love him. And um, it's a great movie. I mean, he just has this weird obsession with guns, pow, 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 as a kid. He shoots, I think, a rabbit, and he's, like, devastated, and he doesn't ever want to shoot and kill anything live again. And... um, he becomes a sharpshooter with her because she's a sharpshooter, and they fall in love, and then they go on a crime spree to make moolah. 
and she is a she's a very again an antisocial creature. Mm-hmm. She shoots her boss, her former boss. Remember that when the payroll robbery, right? Because the boss was against her wearing pants to work. <laughs> she, didn't she walk in wearing pants <laughs> when she killed him? I loved it. How yeah, there you that? go. She and of was... course, you know the uh, the fellow who played the young Bart was uh, was uh, that was um, Russ Tamblin. Rusty Tamblin. Oh, I love him. I wish I could get him on the show. He's so great. Oh, I watched The Haunting. When you asked me another horror movie I watched, I watched The Haunting. And Ross Tamblin is, Russ Tamblin's wonderful in that. And he, you guys would probably know him best from um, West Side Story. That would be, well, he also did a lot of MGM musicals. He did Tom Thumb. He did uh, Seven Brides for Seven Brothers. Terrific dancer. Wonderful. Wonderful yeah, and he was he was cute as a the cute as a cutie pie in the haunting. I loved Luke, his character. Um, so yeah, it was a it's a really good movie, and she really does since she likes to wear pants. She does wear the pants in this relationship and in this movie, and um, it's really good. Uh, they're both wonderful, and highly recommend. And she is nobody's mall. <laughs> She is nobody's mom, that's for sure. She is the leader of the pack, Vroom Vroom. And you say this is another takeoff of the Bonnie and Clyde story. Yeah, very similar in a way to uh, to They Live by Night. And it's interesting when you think about it also, uh, John Dahl and Farty Granger performed together in Hitchcock's Rope as the uh, Lovers. Uh, murderers in that picture. Boyfriends. Uh, yeah, it was very, and that was based on a true story too, actually. And uh, it's it's interesting how they both played similar characters in those films, and then they paired up for Rope, which is a a film I really love, one of my favorite Hitchcocks. It is wonderful. If you haven't seen Rope, people don't really make a big deal of it, but it was all done on one set and just kind of going through, and it's it's really good, and it's based on the Leopold and Loeb story, yes. which is a which is a creepy crime story, and they're, they're these genius guys. And they think that they're superior, so they want to kill somebody. And it's it's good. It's very good. And um, uh, I don't think it gets enough attention as far as a Hitchcock flick goes. It doesn't. And also, at the time of its release, it did very poorly at the box office. It was not one of Hitch's uh, you know major successes. And it's yet what I find one of, them, one of one of the most entertaining of his movies. I don't know. I, I watch it every time it's on television. I just I I, lo- I love the acting. And it's interesting when uh, John Dahl was actually compared to James Stewart in a way, and they're both in that film, and to watch them interact together. It's very interesting. Yeah, because it was re- they thought that he would be kind of proud of them. Although Farley, I mean, he's like, the you know, he just is acting, I'm guilty, I'm guilty, I'm guilty throughout the whole film <laughs> to me. And they, they kill a guy, and they put him in this, like, trunk and they're having his father over for to get books and things like that and his mother but the mother can't come and they put the dinner stuff and like uh candles and everything with the dead body on that little on that thing where they stuffed the dead body which is like psycho psycho psychos more psycho than psycho because they are not um mentally ill or that could be debated, debatable, because that's pretty mentally ill, if you ask. Well, they're sociopathic. Yes. They're sociopathic, definitely. And but John Dahl. Yeah. Oh, yeah, he's, uh, he's like, the, you know, uh, 
Well, you, you pretty much know their their gay characters, right? And he's the one in that relationship. Mm-hmm. Leopold and Loeb, it was the same story. They were the same story, yeah. same story. And then, as uh, I, I, I think it was Loeb was actually killed in prison. He was slashed to death with a razor because he came on to another convict in the showers, and uh, Leopold eventually was released, and he, he married and became quite a. Good citizen, citizen, yeah. He became a very good citizen. Um, yeah. And, yeah, he lived pretty much a long time. It's, it's, you know, watch the movie and then read the story. And there's also a very good movie starring Bradford Dillman and... who's he? Dean Stockwell. Dean Stockwell. Um, and Orson Welles plays the guy that defends him. And it's really a good movie. Compulsion. I, I want to see that again. Compulsion. That's a great film. Yeah, Martin Milner's in that picture. Yeah, very good movie. Yes, I like it a lot, and I would highly recommend that. And to watch companion piece, Rope, because, you you know, it's not the most exciting. It doesn't have, like, one of Hitchcock's cool blondes or anything like that. You know, it's it's just a whole different story than he usually does. But the opening scene, when they come into that scene and you see that victim being strangled, that kind of knocks you for a loop because you don't expect the film to open with that scene. It's amazing. So right, right off the bat, you know, you're, you're hit with something pretty hard there. Yeah, and they're just cruel, and especially John Dahl's character. And when you see him as sort of a passive wimp with um, Peggy Cummins and, and Gun Crazy, he, he had a range. I mean, no, he was not Mr. Charisma, but he was a good actor. Very good point there, Grace. That's true, because, you know, people who say he was kind of a dull persona, when you compare the two roles uh, in, in Rope and in um, Gun Crazy, yeah, he does show a range there. Very true. Very true. And he was in The Corn is Green, and I'm not really crazy about that movie with Betty Davis and, you know, him and the whole thing. And, no, I, I didn't think he had very much charisma. I'm like, what is she seeing him? But he's supposed to be some genius, <laughs> and she wants him to go, but... Uh, no, he, he had his fine films, and a lot of people, I'm sure, like him in that movie as well. But check them. Their, their companion pieces, Rope and Compulsion, Fab. Yeah, great great films, great films, and they're highly recommended. Yes, so you do, I think next is a Bonnie Parker story? Yeah, this is an interesting film because um, they mentioned Bonnie Parker by name, of course, in the title, and yet you never hear... Who Clyde Barrow? You never see uh, Clyde Barrow. His name was changed to Guy Darrow, <laughs> which I don't know if that was a legal reason for that from the Barrow family, the survivors, or what it is. But the film is highly fictionalized, as most of those uh, so-called uh, biography crime biographies Based were. Based on the, a true story, kind of deal. Yeah, nineteen fifty-eight, and. Uh, if you watch the movie, it's, it's, it's good if you want to watch a you know a, a gangbuster picture. Who's and the dame? Is, Who's the dame? Pardon me? Who's the woman who plays Bonnie Parker? Dorothy Provine. Dorothy Provine. I I, have to, I don't know. I'm trying to think of this actress. But what? what well, she's she done. Be? She's done a number of films. She was a, she was more of a B actress. Mm-hmm. Very very attractive blonde. Um, certainly much more attractive than the real Bonnie Parker was. Yes, well, we'll get to the other movie, too, which is funny. Um, <laughs> well, there you go. Um, but anyway, yeah, so it's an interesting film. It really takes a lot of liberties with the true story. Like I say, the actual 
true story of a gangster's life has yet to be made. You know, it's not close, but there's always some element of fiction there. Right. Uh, like the Johnny Depp public enemies, which I don't even want to talk about. But um, I don't yeah, get the Bonnie whole Johnny Parker's Depp story. thing. You know, I really never did. I don't get it. Well, I, I was looking forward to seeing Public Enemies because I'm a huge, you know, fan of those kind of movies. And Depp was okay. I mean, he did a, a fair job, but the movie itself is so fictionalized. I, I mean, I just, I, I don't know. I guess I'm a purist when it comes to films like that. Well, it is because you know so ass- much. You know so much about the real characters, so it, it kind of, you know, yeah. you, you're more critical of it as someone well, who didn't just- see them. I've always said that like, people have asked me because they know of my interest in the books I've written and articles I've written about, uh, you know, the, the real the real gangsters. Um, what I think is the most honestly presented movie, as close as it can be, and I always say it's the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. I think that actually stuck the closest to the facts of any gangster movie. I can't watch that movie. <laughs> I know you told yeah. You told me that once. Yeah. <laughs> I can. It just is, I know what happened, you know what I mean? And it's so real. And like the one with Ricardo Cortez, and he just kills everybody. And it's just, I, I was shocked. And I just was like, more than any, and I don't watch, I love horror films, but I don't watch blood and gut stuff, um, which is hard to find these days. So I watch oh, cl- classic ones. Um, but... Uh, I don't know. It, it just freaked me out. I couldn't watch it. Like Beast of the City, you know, I can't watch that either. You really? That's, you can't watch Beast of the City because of the ending? I get so mad and so upset, and it's such a waste, and I get mad at, at you know, this guy. at um, Walter Houston. Yeah, I want to beat his butt. <laughs> He's just oh, yeah. bringing everybody to their death for what? Please. Well, they got to avenge the two cops who were killed because of Wallace Ford's getting yeah. involved with. Well, what what an avenge when they all die? They don't yeah, even know I that know. they've avenged it. <laughs> avenged it. So I don't. Well, know. Well, I know. It's, it's, what's really funny is that's an MGM film, and you think, wow, what a violent downbeat ending for MGM. You know, it's just you, maybe from Warner Brothers you'd expect that, but actually, anything compared to Warner Brothers at that period is pretty mild compared to what you see in Beast of the City. Yeah, it's pretty pretty bad for me. So I don't watch it. I saw it once. I don't need to see it again. It's a great <laughs> film, but oh man, no way, Jose, the ending. So Bonnie Parker's story, should we go on to Bonnie and Clyde, the one with Faye Dunaway and Mr. Uh, Shirley MacLaine's brother, Warren Beatty, Mr. Mom. Well, what do you, let me ask you first there, Grace. You've seen the film. What are your feelings about it? Bonnie and Clyde? Yeah, the movie. It's enjoyable, but, you know, I'm so distracted by Faye Dunaway. You know, she can only play certain roles. She's so sophisticated. She has this really specific look, and I don't buy her, and I didn't buy Warren Beatty. It's an enjoyable flick, but I don't buy them. You know, I thought Estelle Parsons was great and um, all the other cast. It, and it was, you know, a myth as well. Um, I don't know. I mean, I didn't, I, it's enjoyable to a point, but I, I just, you know, Bonnie Parker was now Faye Dunaway. And Faye Dunaway just is so glamorous with the cheekbones, even her little beret. I mean, she had bad, really good crime clothes. You know, I just, I don't know. But 
That's me. Well, I'm not going to ask you. I'm not going to ask you how old you are, but I saw the movie when it came out in '67. Uh, managed to get into the theater. I and, was too uh, I wasn't. Uh, I couldn't see. I'm being always so my age here. But, uh, yeah, the, the whole Faye Dunaway wardrobe thing actually started kind of a fashion craze at that time. Well, it was great. It was all cool. Cool clothes. I love her, her clothes in that movie. And, um, you know, her nice hairdo and, and, you know, no snarls, no, you know, they're on the road. They're doing so I'm kind of like picking at it because, you know, in that way. And, and you know more about how it was versus real life. Well, the, the film is completely highly fictionalized. They, they romanticize the story. Now, I don't know for sure. I've heard, you know, different reports on the relationship that Clyde was actually bisexual. And in fact, he and uh, Bonnie and their pickup, uh, uh, what was his name? W.D. Oh, W.D. Jones, who is uh, the C.W. Moss character played by Michael J. Pollard. Apparently they were... The three of them were intimate in a weird kind of relationship. Then I've heard that's been disputed, that no, you know, Clyde was totally heterosexual, and he and Bonnie did have a very strong romance. So I don't know. And I've also heard the story been... that um, Clyde was impotent. Well, that's, well that's, actually, that's actually what's in the movie. Apparently that wasn't really the truth. Yeah. Uh, he was actually quite the opposite. But in the movie they make it look as if he is. Uh, until he gets aroused because he's into the whole violence thing. And oh, that was when actually- they start killing and they get really hot for each other even mm-hmm. more. Mm-hmm. But um, here, you, you say that you don't, you never really uh, accepted Faye Dunaway as Bonnie. Uh, the original choice for Bonnie was Tuesday Weld. And she almost did the part, but she, uh, for whatever reason, turned it down. Well, I guess I would have bought her more, but she's so wholesome looking, you know, and then there's Miss Sophisticate. So I don't know. I don't mean to be critical. I just think that, you know, Faye Dunaway, you just can't see as this, you know, young, was she a waitress or something or, you know, and this, she was supposed to be really young. And, and even when Faye was young, she looked older, you know, not old. She just had this sophisticated look. So, you know, here I am, I'm, I'm like penny anting it, but. Uh, you know, I, I really didn't buy it, but I did enjoy a lot of the film. And um, but they were real stone cold murderers. They were, yeah. Unlike were a bad. lot of the, des- a lo- yeah, unlike a lot of the desperados of the '30s, like Dillinger and Pretty Boy Floyd, and that uh, these guys uh, were were pretty kill crazy, and uh, they never made the kind of money that Dillinger. Or- made during his uh, crime spree, they would be, you know, rob gas stations and, you know, banks that were on the on the verge of folding. So they never really made top dollar, like, you know. But because of the movie, uh, they became like uh, folk celebrities. Right. Romanticized up the wazoo. Exactly. I'll tell, you, I'll tell you what my biggest problem, and I shouldn't say biggest problem, but if I had my way, if I could go back and, 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 and cast this movie... I would love to have seen Warren Oates play Buck Barrow, Clyde's brother. Gene Hackman's terrific, a great actor, but if you ever look at a picture of Warren Oates next to Warren Beatty, I, they look very much alike. I mean, Warren Oates looks a little bit more like he's gone to seed, but he would have been, to me, so much more believable in that role than Gene Hackman, who looks nothing like Warren Beatty. Right. Um, I don't see the resemblance between Warren Oates and Warren Beatty, but... There are coloring issues in the hair and things like that, which he certainly looked a lot more than um, than our darling Gene 
Pac-Man. No. You know, so... Um, I guess that's amazing because so many people I've talked to said, oh, yeah, I can really see. He looks like, you know, Warren Beatty gone to sea. <laughs> well, it <didn't> could be. <laughs> but I really, I love Warren Oates. I think he's a great actor. I love him. Yeah, I love him. He's one of the, one of my favorites. Yeah, he's, he doesn't get enough credit. And he's, he's a really good actor. He's done some wonderful parts. Terrific, yeah. And, and in fact, he's in the next movie we're going to talk about. Yes, indeedy. Tell. Badlands. Yes. Parent? He plays. Yes. He plays uh, Sissy SpaceX's father, who meets a untimely end, <laughs> which yes. he usually does in his movies anyway. Yes, very quickly. And this film is also romanticized. Um, Sissy SpaceX oh, yeah. was supposed to be a teenager, and in some points, she did look very, very young because she did, you know. But she was twenty-four years old. I love Martin Sheen. I still think he's a hunk of hunk of burning love today. He's very, oh, he's handsome too. And he has these like piercing blue eyes that just go like he's, it's like he's got x-ray vision and can look at your bones, you know, know. (laughs) something like that. But, um, you know, and I love them both as actors, Sissy and, um, and Martin. But uh, I don't know. I, I like the film. I hated her monotone. My daddy was killed. Then we went and got a burger. And, but that, I'm putting inflection in there. We went and got a hamburger. Then I got a milkshake. And then we killed another guy. And then, I mean, it was just this monotone thing. Where no, no, I'm, I'm just going to nominate you for the remake. You're taking that part. That's perfect. <laughs> Well, I'd do a better accent if I could do it, not just so monotone. And, you know, I haven't watched it, and then I watched it again. And that was one thing I remembered all the way, that that drove me nuts. And um, but and, and someone said, you know, they, they romanticize these two. And Charles Starkweather, this is based on them, Carol Fugate, and, and Charles Starkweather, who went on a horrible killing spree. Um, he, he, I believe, was he a garbage man? He was a garbage man, yeah, trash collector, yeah. I think he was about 18 years old, and she was yeah. 15, and in the movie, Dada didn't want her to be with him, and then I guess, they, you know, he shot her dogs, and then they shot him, and um, they just went on it, and in it, you know, do you, do you think she's the uh, victim, or is she just, a, you know, is she just, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? And yeah, um, my, you know, my problem with that movie, and I like the movie a lot, and I watch it quite often when, it, when I when it's on television, is they make the um, Kit Carruthers, uh, Charles Starkweather character, too likable. Even when he's killing people, he's got a likability about him. Like, I don't think the real Charles Starkweather, I mean, it's another case of a sociopath. Right. I don't think he was, you know. Another but, one. He, he wanted to be James Dean. He felt he was yeah. like James Dean. And they they romanticized this. You know, the oh, lighting, it's Terrence Malick. I think it was his first director, directing job. And, um, you know, they romanticize these guys, and they were horrible. And if you see the true story of it, um, Carol Fugate, at first they get picked up, and, he, and you see them together. She's just a little girl. She's 14, her hair in a ponytail, tiny thing. He's not very tall, but he does. You know, he has his cool hairdo and things like that, and he thinks he's James Dean. Mm-hmm. And he, at first, says, 
she had nothing to do with it. He protects her. And then she does nothing for him. And he goes and he testifies against her. And the jury thought she was, you know, he bought it. They bought it and thought she was guilty. And frankly, I do too. Oh, yeah, I think so. Definitely. Oh, yeah. I mean, she she would have to be a total Moronsky to not realize what he's doing. Well, they were know. both total Moronskys, from what I read. You know, they're oh yeah, they were they were not not bright. I mean, you know, you could Charles uh, Starkweather. He killed eleven people and two family dogs uh, in Nebraska and Wyoming between December of '57 and January of 1958. He was 19 years old. He killed 10 of those victims between January 21st and January 29th, Ugh. 1958, before he was arrested. Yeah. And she, was, and she was 14, like you say, yeah. So she got, you know, she got, uh, did not get the death penalty. I don't believe she ever would have because of her age and her being um, so young. But he did. He got the death penalty, and they don't play around in those days. You get it, like, the next year or even whatever. I mean, you don't have these appeals, and you don't stay on death row for 20 years or anything like that. And he said that she should be sitting on my lap, <laughs> Carol, you know, when he gets well, the electric he, chair. Well, he was executed about a year later mm-hmm. after his, or maybe a little bit late. late uh, he was arrested in uh, January. Of uh, fifty-eight, and he was executed in June of fifty-nine. Yeah, they don't—they don't mess around. If you, then oh, they just—you didn't, didn't have thirty-year, uh, you know, sentences before your sentences were actually carried out, like some people today. You know, they—you can live on the on the state forever and ever before you, if if you even see the uh, the uh, the ultimate outcome. Carol. And Carol, yeah, she, she was she was sentenced to life imprisonment, but she was paroled uh, in nineteen seventy-six. Yeah, which is amazing. And she, I think she became a home health care aide. And she um, got married at one point. And she just wanted a nice life in the country, living with her squeeze. But I think her husband died in a car accident um, not too long after they were married. And um, she got to live her life, you know. I don't, I don't know. Um, well, I don't know whether she herself was a killer like Bonnie Parker was with Clyde, but I she certainly was in one respect. Definitely. She was complicit. And, you know, like he said, Correct. she had a machine gun or a gun. She could have gotten away. She could have done something. And yeah. I don't know. She went along with him. And I, I just, there's a picture of them after they caught, got caught and they're sitting on a bench next to each other. And they're both like smiling and laughing. So she was so terrified. I don't think she'd be sitting next to him smiling and laughing and hoo hoo ha ha ha, you know. Oh. just killed all these oh. people, hoo-hoo-hoo, ha-ha-ha. I, I well, would... that's a miscarriage of justice, unfortunately. That happens sometimes, you know, and uh, he was the one they were really after anyway. But um, it's interesting in the movie, though, in uh, Badlands, how they kind of romanticize the end there. I mean, even it looks as if the arresting officers kind of have a almost a respect for the Martin Sheen character, Kit Carruthers, which is kind of weird. Uh, and in fact, I think one of them even says that he's being taken off on the plane. Good luck to you. Yes. And, like, Whoa. and another <laughs> I just, one. I just, yeah. People, what are you talking about? Um, and also, uh, one of the guys in the movie says, you look like James Dean. And he's like, you know, he's just smiling and like, yeah, I do. Don't I, you know, <laughs> whatever. Oh. And it's, it is romanticized, and um, 
you know, they do their little dancing and they do their little things. And then she puts on her makeup and then they go and get French fries and they do this whole thing. And it's just like, I don't know. And to read the real story, um, they, they locked, you know, they killed everybody in the family. He, he killed her two-year-old sister and they put this thing up saying everyone has the flu, you know, we'll get back to you when we feel better. And, um, I don't know, you know. It's, I think I, one of the best lines, <clears throat> pardon me, one of the best lines in the movie is uh, after uh, Kit's arrested and one of the officers kind of walks up to him, I believe, and says, you're the same size as I am. And almost as if, you know, they've created a mythic legend out of star, uh, the, the character. And when he finally is arrested, he's just like anybody else. He's like some, you know, some small guy. He's not this, this mythic color that he's supposed to be. Yeah, I think he's about five foot eight or something, as was James Dean. <laughs> so there you go. He was that. It is a good film. I I like it, but to see SpaceX droning throughout really bugs me. And um, I don't know. It just kind of, if you know the true story, it's just kind of gross. So you look at it and you, you know, they, whatever, he's dead. He got, he got it. Bonnie and Clyde, they got shot uh, tons of times. Well, that's the problem with a lot of the films of, of this sort, especially when you're dealing with a killer couple, is they romanticize, uh, the, you know, the whole relationship, and the killings are almost incidental right. to the relationship the characters are sharing. Yeah, and it's, um, I don't know, it it is a good movie, and I do recommend it, but, you know, beware, Sissy SpaceX drones. <laughs> it's supposed oh, to be well, that way. She's supposed to drone. And I liked Martin Sheen a lot better in it, actually. And I think this probably gave her her start. And I love her. You know, she did Carrie. She did Coal Miner's Daughter. She did so many wonderful films and TV. And I, I really like Sissy Spacek. I think she's a great actress. Yeah, she's, a, she's, she's wonderful. And like you say, the next year she played Carrie, the uh, tormented high school student. Was that the next year? Wow. I, I believe so. It's 74, 75. Uh, because Badlands was seven. Okay, I was seventy three. Could have been seventy five. So they, I, I, I'm not exactly sure. Seventy four, seventy five. Uh, actually, I think it was probably seventy five because the book came out in seventy four. So that was a great. I loved reading Stephen King books. <laughs> we'll have to do a show on that. <laughs> I especially, loved them, especially since I'm going to give my own plug here. My latest horror novel has just been released. It's been released now. I believe so. I'm just waiting for my complimentary copies before I send my loved one. There you go. I can't wait to read it. I can't wait for you to read it. Tell so everybody maybe, the name but, of the book. Well, it's called The Batesville Ghoul. And I just got a review from a local person who actually got an advanced copy who has referred to the book as Jaws of the North Country. And also, you I are the... Kind of is a, uh, I can't wait to read it. And somebody also said you are the... Stephen King of Manitoba. <laughs> uh, that was Western Report magazine back when I was starting off my horror writing career, which I kind of sidelined to do other kind of books, as you know. But, uh, yeah, that one has come out, and uh, I'm just waiting to get my complimentary copies, and there will be one coming your way. Can't wait, because I love horror novels, too. I oh, mean, yeah. you know, I love classic movies. I need peace, love, and soul. But <laughs> I do <laughs> I do love to read horror stuff. And uh, I love The Walking Dead and all that stuff. What can I tell you? Yeah. I, I'm a woman of varied taste. 
What can I say? So that's cool because I'll tell you, there's not many too, uh, many out there who are who are like you who uh, get into uh, you know a good scary good scary tale. Like my book, um, without going into too much detail at this point, is uh, is uh, gory to a point, but I don't really want to make it too explicit because I don't feel it really benefits the story. I want to make it more like a human interest story with some interesting political ramifications and a legendary monster who kind of is involved in the plot. So that's all I will say at this point. I would, I can't wait to read it and I'm very excited to read your book. And Your copy coming once I get mine, my comps. That's yeah, a guarantee. Yay who, I can't wait. Um, <laughs> do we have any other movies or no? Yeah, we have Natural Born Killers. And I want your opinion on this one. Um, bad Girl, when I watched horror movies and, and these movies about malls and, and mugs, I haven't seen Natural Born Killers in ages. This is with Brad Pitt, right? And um, No, Woody Harrelson and Juliette Lewis. Yeah, oh, she was great when she was a kid, Juliette Lewis. Yeah. Um. I don't really... I just know that they were terrible killers. I don't really... What do you think they were supposed to be? Do you think they were supposed to Judy, be like... They were, again, we're talking about the uh, Charles Starkweather, Carol Fugate mm-hmm. type, but they're become, they become celebrities, media celebrities, despite all the murders they do. And, I mean, they're cold-blooded as can be. I mean, they actually make uh, the real Charles Starkweather look like, uh, uh, you know... Um, Beaver Cleaver. I mean, these guys, these guys are vicious, and he's very vicious. But the thing is, they become media celebrities. And uh, Robert Downey Jr., he uh, plays the uh, one who kind of uh, sensationalizes and capitalizes on their uh, on their fame. And it's, it's, I'll tell you my feeling about the movie is I really was looking forward to seeing this. Oliver Stone directed, of course. But I didn't care for the way he filmed the movie. It was too... Like an, like an acid drip. You know, I, I wish you would have had more of a, a, a sane story to it. I mean, the story is good, but the way he filmed it was kind of like just all over the place, and you kind of walk out of the theater with a headache afterwards. Yeah. It, well, it was a, you know, he's making sort of a, a statement how anybody can become a celebrity, even if you're horrible murderers, and it's creepy, but... Um, you know, Oliver Stone certainly has his own style, and then Quentin Tarantino kind of does, does his own thing, where he's pretty, does his violent and um, brutal murders, murderous creatures. And I don't know, you know, I like the older ones, to be honest. Well, I, I, exactly, because in this film, there's that scene there with Roddy Dangerfield kind of plays the Carol Fugate's character's father, Julia Lewis. Yeah. And that whole scene is kind of played like a situation comedy before he gets killed when he's, you know, drowned by Woody Harrelson in a, in a, in a fish uh, bowl or uh, tank. Yeah. And it's just, and they get, they get a laugh track in the background. And I'm thinking, man, you know, the best way to enjoy this movie is to be on acid or something because it's just, the story is good. And I was really looking forward to it, but the, t- the, the technique is just a little bit too out there for me personally. I mean, a lot of people seem to like it, but oh, a lot of like, like you say, it, yeah. you know, an older film it's got more of a uh, coherent story, you know, uh, line to it than this one does. Yeah, you're not trying to capture, uh, they're trying to go everywhere, you know what I mean, and get every audience they can possibly get. And um, it did very well. 
It really did, but um, you know, I I haven't seen it in in years. Hence, I know Juliet Lewis was with Brad Pitt, so maybe that's where I got Brad Pitt with Woody Harrelson mixed up. But she was a good actress, an interesting actress. Oh yeah, she's done some great films. I agree, but this this one to me is a missed opportunity. I mean, it's played on television a few times. I've seen it once, but it's one of those films I really don't care to watch it again. Maybe at some point I might give it another revisit to see if I, you know, my my, my views have changed on it. But I, I was, you know, for something that had so much build up and uh, uh, promotion, I was quite disappointed with it. I thought this is kind of too crazy, too crazy for you know for me. But then again, maybe I'm too much of a purist. You are, you know, you know, it's just, you know, the facts, just the facts, ma'am. And you know them. And sometimes when you know them so well, it's really hard to go in and see something that's so funky and kind of like, give me a break. Laugh track. And he's having his head done. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's just- yeah, exactly. Like I'm thinking, this is really weird. I mean, like I say, if you're, if you're on some kind of a substance, maybe, uh, you know, it might be, it might be a better film to watch that way. I mean, I'm not into that type of a life thing, but, uh, uh, you probably would get more out of it than somebody who's sitting there watching it, you know, clear-headed. Well, as a as a warning and report, Stone is not in any way, shape, or form telling you to take drugs when you watch no, this. No, movie. no, 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 please. <laughs> no, you no, no. I'm just talking to that. I'm, I'm you know, way in the outside there because yeah. to me it looks as if that film is kind of intended for that audience, and uh, I'm not. I'm not recommending that. Please don't. Please <laughs> away. Well, maybe maybe have a beer if you want, but uh, keep away from the you know yeah. <laughs> anything is uh, you know messes with your melon, as Steve yeah. McQueen would say. I'm with Stevie Boy and Stony Boy. Anyway, Stone, I think we've done a good show. This is part two, everybody. And yeah, it's a lot of fun with you. As I always I always always do, and uh, yeah, it's great always doing these uh, these uh, film reviews. Yeah, it's a blast, and. Um, we must do them again and again and again. Pip- I look forward to it. And all that sort of stuff. And, of course, Stone's going to come on and talk about his scary book. Oh, I'm looking forward to that because I think uh, I'm very proud of the uh, the novels I've written in that regard. I mean, that's my 20th book, by the way. Congrats. You know, so, um, yeah, I'm looking forward to uh, to seeing how this book does. And uh, it, I've, kind of got, I've kind of come full circle. I mean, my, my first books were in that genre that I got away into doing westerns and doing uh, histories and biographies. And now I've kind of come back into writing the spooky stuff, which is appropriate since Halloween's coming up. God can believe that. It's already, already here a month from now. No, so, yeah. it's so creepy. Yeah, he's going to do, Stoney's going to do my spook tech. <laughs> I want to be on your spook. I hope we do that. Yeah, we, do do we are definitely going to do my spooktacular. And um, you're going to be my guest. We've already discussed it. So that's going to be great. So, everybody, thank you so much for listening. Um, Stone, thank you so much for coming on. Oh. You are always a pleasure. And thank you, Grace. I, ho- I hope you guys enjoy the shows. And um, till next week. Bye, everybody. And thank you, Stone. Bye bye. Listen to the stories of Tinsel Town.